following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. As a a long-term CEO, 26 years, I've had the opportunity to, to, to really look and reflect in the public markets, and here's what I see. I see investors no longer owning companies but renting stock. Forty years ago, the average holding time for, for a public company was eight years. Today, it's eight months. Um, people are renting their stock. You have a very, very, very different world um, that, that's played out. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Today, we have the founder, chairman, and CEO of Panera, Ron Shake. And I'm Ron, I was looking at a, a Forbes article we wrote this spring, and when Panera was publicly traded, uh, you outperformed Warren Buffett over a very long time. So that's, that's a bread company that's making some serious dough, I think. Yeah. In fact, Steve, we were the uh, best-performing restaurant stock of the last two decades. When you measured over those two decades, uh, we actually... Um, produce returns 40 times better than the S&P 500. We uh, had a performance that was up um, twice the performance of Starbucks, four times the performance of of Chipotle. And as you all told us in that article, (laughs) our annual returns over those 20 years, Steve, were were 25%, which I was pleased to hear beat uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. So we feel real good about it. What's the secret recipe? How did you do that? Well, you know, I've been a public company CEO for 26 years. I um, have served as CEO of this company uh, and and as a public company longer than Cal Ripken played baseball. (laughs) I'm still standing. And, 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 you know, the key to me has been um, to try to find means and mechanisms for competitive advantage um, and opportunities for for, uh, long-term growth, runways for long-term growth. And... If you look at it, Panera has continued to transform itself. I cite six different transformations over the 36 years I've run this company, over mm-hmm. its you know um, 26 years as a public company. And breaking away to say thank you to Veridesk and Rocket Mortgage for their support of our podcast, The Forbes Interview. More about these companies later in the show. You can go all the way back to its formation. I formed it. Uh, initially as a, as a 400 square foot cookie store in downtown Boston, um, a block from the old Filene's and a block from Park Street Station. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, its first transformation was to recognize that there was an opportunity in French bake goods. Um, that occurred pretty quickly when we merged my original cookie store with a business called Old Bon Pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that was back in 1981. Second major transformation would be the recognition that, quite frankly, um, croissant bread were more powerful as a platform than as a product. I can remember when customers used to walk into our stores mm-hmm. 
and I'd be working the counter, and somebody would walk up to me and say, could you cut that bread? And I'd say, sure, and I'd start to slice it the way you slice bread uh, through, through, uh, through it. And somebody would say, no, cut it from top to bottom. i say, sure. I didn't know what they wanted, but I did it. Okay. I'd hand them the loaf of bread. And and, 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 and and they put some luncheon meats on it, some some turkey from the local stop and shop pours on. And again, you didn't have to be a Harvard MBA to listen to customers and say, wow, they really wanted the, sa- the bread for the sandwich, not the bread for itself. And that led us to create what was the first French bakery cafe, one of them for sure, in, in, in Harvard Square in Boston, Copley Place. That was the, the mid-'80s. And this thing took off. What had been a, a, a broken down little company was transformed into one of the hottest categories. At any rate, by '91 we'd gone public. We bested all these large companies that came after us. And I would say to you, um, in '93, um, I was looking for continued growth. I, I, I believe that one of our roles as leaders are is to tell the truth and mm-hmm. tell the truth most importantly to ourselves. And it was very clear to me, as a newly public company, we had a wonderful. Um, carriage trade business, but we didn't have the kind of growth dimensions that the public markets wanted. It led me to um, to buy a, a small chain in St. Louis called the St. Louis Bread Company. Gotcha. Oh, so this Later is so this is Obampan that went public first. Yes, Obampan okay. was the public is the public company. This is the same company. Okay, right. Nineteen ninety one, we take Obampan public. In ninety three, um, we realized we were our growth was slowing. We built out a large manufacturing business. We began building out internationally, and I bought a 19-store chain in St. Louis called the St. Louis Bread Company. Mm-hmm. And you'll love this story. The guy I bought it from um, took the $23 million we paid him, and he was very smart. He knew we knew how to take care of this thing, mm-hmm. and he took that $23 million and became our franchisee. <laughs> and today, now, you know, 24 years later, um, he would tell you, I would tell you, that we still both love each other, and the franchise that he created as part of Panera is now probably five times more valuable and certainly five times larger than the business he sold us. How, how many so does, he, up, does he own? How many stores does he own? Oh, he had, at his height, he had over 100. Wow. Um, the, the, the important point is, you, you never hear it, but this is one of those deals where Twenty three years later we still love each other and that doesn't happen in corporate America. He did what he said he was gonna do, we did what we said we were gonna do, and it led to a great relationship and I, I love the story. But at any rate, that would have been ninety three and and ninety four and ninety five were the were really the the, the the point in which led to the next major transformation that led to the success of this company. Um, in 94 and 95, you began to see um, what, what, what I, I call the commodifying of society. Everything mm-hmm. and everywhere you looked was the same. Um, every consumer category was dominated by um, just a couple of brands. You take uh, beer and Isaac Bush and Miller dominated the industry. Yeah. Uh, the beer industry, you can go to Coke and Pepsi. You can go to um, uh, Maxwell House and Folgers. And because we had we had emerged over the prior 30 years in these oligopolies, there was a reaction. In the early 90s, you, you were looking for the deeper trend. You started to see people who said, I want to feel special in a world in which it isn't. And you started to see the development of specialty beer. A good friend of mine here in Boston, Jim Cook with Sam Adams. Yeah, we had, we had, Jim on the, we had the Jim on the show a few months ago. 
Yeah, Jim's a very good friend. You saw the development of Specialty Coffee. Another good friend of mine, Howard Schultz at Starbucks. Yeah. You saw the development of specialty beverages. Coke and Pepsi lent themselves to Snapple, Waldo, and now the fragmentation. We saw the same exact phenomena happening in, in food, and we saw it happening in bread. It had all been local at one time. That had massed into national brands. And people wanted to feel special in a world where everything was the same, in which fast food was essentially nutritional cocaine. You know, it was the quickest way to inject nutrition into your body at four in the afternoon. It was a self-service gasoline station for the human body. And we began to say there was an opportunity in specialty food. And there was a powerful opportunity. And ultimately, this view that, that a, a, about a third of the marketplace really wanted to feel special in a, in, a, in a food world where they weren't. They wanted food that, that, they, that they desired. They wanted to, to eat it in environments that engaged them. They wanted to be served by people that weren't just extensions of the cash register that, that actually had a sense of pride. Mm -hmm. They wanted the self-respect that came with doing something they respected. And ultimately, that vision, which was this third transformation in the, in the early to mid-'90s, that vision became what's now called fast casual. And Fast Casual um, is now a $50 billion uh, business. Um, Panera is probably the poster child for it. But we built this around a different model, real food, engaging environments served by people who cared. And um, we started investing in Panera, one of the four divisions. By 99, 98, 99, comes the next major transformation in the company. And again, this is what we do as business leaders. We discover today what's going to matter tomorrow and make sure our companies are prepared and ready for that as the world unfolds. And so in 1999, I'm looking at this thing, Panera. We'd renamed St. Louis Bread Company Panera. Mm -hmm. It was one of, 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 of our four divisions. And, and I'm looking at this thing and I'm, I'm saying to myself, I'm saying to my friends, my God, this has the potential to be a nationally dominant brand. I knew it. It had volumes that were consistent across the country at high levels. It had a, a certain thing to it. And I, and I realized for every hundred people that tell you they've got a nationally dominant brand, one ever makes it. It's so hard. And I began saying to myself, we're going to screw this thing up. It's just one of our four brands. Hmm. It, you know, it's got professional managers. And I, and I was really kind of um, bothered by it, concerned. And I was traveling. I was with a friend. And this friend said to me, Ron, what would you do if Panera owned Obon Pen, Obon Pen International, and Obon Pen Manufacturing? Mm -hmm. I said, you know, Panera is the gem, and it's, it's buried. If we don't take care of this thing, we're going to destroy it. I would, I would do the most difficult thing in my life. I'd sell every other division, take all the capital and the very best people, and go down and make – and help Panera fulfill its destiny. And Ron, what were the and I, I'm a, sorry? What were the other divisions? I know Auburn Pond, but what were the other two brands or divisions that you were oh, running? Oh, so we had presidents running Auburn Pen USA. Uh -huh. We had another president running our international division, which was we had stores in Thailand and and um, Chile and and across Latin America and Asia, and then we had a third business um, called ABP Manufacturing, totally separate. We had among the largest frozen dough facilities in in the Midwest, and we were manufacturing um, dough uh, to sell in all kinds of other retailers and also for our own stores. 
So we had four different divisions, four different presidents. I see. Um, and really interestingly, everybody was upset. The guys in 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 Obama Pen were concerned because I was taking money from there and using it to grow Panera. The guys in 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 international never wanted to come home or call home. The guys in manufacturing were trying to figure out why they were in a retail company, and the guys in Panera didn't. You know, we, we had a growth thing, and they didn't really have the infrastructure in place to to deal with what growth was going to require. And and you saw this, but but you know, so often the question in running a business is the paradigm from which you saw it, you see it. And I couldn't get myself focused. I realized that Panera was the gem, but the name on the door was Old Bon Pen. Hmm. And my board said, We invested in Old Bon Pen. And but I realized that this needed to be cared for. And you know, to be frank with you, in retrospect, it looks brilliant. I get it. You know, the stock is up. 80 or 90 fold from that point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a phenomenal run. Having said that, Steve, the, 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 at the time when I was going through it, as ever when you're going through a tough decision, mm-hmm. it was so very difficult. Selling Obon Pen, that was my first son. Yeah. You know, these were people I loved. These were people I grew up with. It was, you know, it, 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 it it's very difficult. And, and, um, I can only say, you know, as I look back on it, how, you know, the, 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 I can say that the, there's a clarity. And sometimes you face those kind of decisions and you have to go forward. You well, know, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you another little story. You know, people say to me all the time, you know, you know, Ron, back then you could have bought the stock for three bucks a share. The stock eventually sold for $315 a share. You could have bought the stock for $3 a share. Why didn't you tell me? I tell them, guys, I was telling you, right? I was telling you for two years. Nobody wanted to listen. And the reality is when you're going through transformation, nobody wants to believe you because Hmm. most people don't believe anything until it's done. And nothing is proven until it's done. And so what leadership requires what growing a business what leadership always requires is 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 developing a hypothesis a set of information um, understanding where the world is going and then shall I say making a smart bet into that and so for us the smart bet was on Panera and we bet on it um, I sold everything else off um, took all the the, the the financial research and the best people, and I moved down to St. Louis for a bunch of years, and I helped kick this into gear. And you didn't do and this. Then, yeah, this was in an echo chamber. You know, this was a publicly traded company, and I'm sure you had you had board members, you had large shareholders, you had research, you know, analysts, and everyone watching your move. How was it to make that decision? I mean, were were you getting? Did you have to go on a big kind of lobbying rally to make people see your way? Were were researchers on the sell side kind of calling you crazy? What was what was the environment like there? There were lots of tension around it, um, and again, in retrospect, it looks brilliant. When we were going through it, it was hard. I had a huge board fight. Um, I at one time had controlled the board. Um, and then my father was on the board, and also my partner both came down with cancer. And the board, uh, which were essentially um, financial investors, um, well, institutional, but but institutional investors, VCs, they had signed up for Old Bon Pen. They weren't quite sure why I wanted to bet the company in this thing called hmm. St. Louis Bread Company Panera. And at the time, how and, much was the revenue? And there was a 
Was and it? Steve, there was Sorry. a big fight. It was a bet your job kind of thing. Hmm. Because once we completed the transaction, the board resigned, and we rebuilt the board and the company at that point. And we'll be right back after this quick break. It's the new year, and lots of us are at least thinking about ways in which we can be happier and healthier. Maybe we'll take in some yoga, cook up better dinners, or perhaps try a standing desk like Veridesk. Veridesk turns your desk into a standing desk, so you're more active than sitting all day. Standing more and sitting less can lead to more energy, less back pain, and more productivity. Check out Veridesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping both ways. See it for yourself at veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. At the time, was like was St. Louis Bread Company just a tiny little sliver of the Panera business? It was the third of the fourth biggest division. I see. And it was it was probably a third or a quarter the size of Obonpen. What were the now, th- today? Yeah. It's ten times larger. <laughs> yeah, and you're mentioning that you know the the what is Panera now was the jewel. What at this time? Take me back a little bit. What was the difference between going to an Obampan store and a Panera store? What was the, the key difference? What was making people you know, love the well, Panera experience? Well, we always start with the numbers because they're the byproduct, but that's not the answer to your question. The numbers were that, the, that, that Panera was doing volumes at that time already 40 or 50% higher than Obampan, hmm. and it was doing that in real estate, suburban real estate, that cost less than the urban real estate Obon Pen was in. And it was doing so. One of the things we look at when we look at a concept for its sustainability or its growth was it was doing so with highly consistent volumes. Almost wherever we opened, it was performing. Hmm. And it was very clear to me we were, we were serving real consumer needs. Um, we had a very viable breakfast business rooted in our bagels and later our breakfast sandwiches and our coffee. We also had a huge gathering place business where people were coming in. They, what they were buying was a, a place to sit and carry on an interview or a conversation. The price of mission basically became our food and drink. And then on top of that, we had this powerful lunch business rooted in our, 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 our bread credibility and our ability to do sandwiches and, and salads and, and soup. And so we had a dominant position, a better competitive alternative in a range of different jobs that, that consumers were willing to, to hire us for. And and that manifested itself in, in these very high unit volumes that were basically consistent from, shall I say, you know, Detroit, Michigan to Portland, Oregon to Miami, Florida. Hmm. And you could see its reproducibility. Panera was a mainstream brand that had reproducibility. And it's funny, you mentioned, kind of going back, this has been you know, many different iterations, but you've been in this game, this company's 36 years old, and through that, you've um, really, you know, rode all these different trends. There's been so many different trends in food, everything from, you know, the advent of the kind of the, the Starbucks coffee kind of thing to the, you've had organic, you've had gluten-free, you've had eating natural, you've had the Atkins diet back in a couple of years ago when everyone was shunning carbs. How do you do, do? You follow these trends? Do you just kind of do, or do you kind of just do what you think is right, and hopefully it all works out? No, not at all. I, I, I actually would argue, and we should go back to the last two transformations, by the way. But yeah, but, but <laughs> the, the, the the last one being the biggest, um, in a weird way, even even when you think about the sale of everything else but Panera. Um, but but you but you're asking me, 
do we follow the trends? Here, here's what I think the role of leadership is, and that is to separate the wheat from the chaff and know what the deeper trends are. So we don't follow fads. What we do is try to figure out what's going to really matter in a deep and profound way three to five years from now. What we discovered was what became the genesis of fast casual, that people wanted something more than a lot of food at a cheap price. Mm -hmm. They wanted something more than commercial processed food. They wanted real food served in environments that engaged them by people that cared. And that there was a large niche in the marketplace that held their noses when they went into fast food places. And so we're always, I'm always looking for, 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 for what's the deeper trend. I'm looking for what's the signal, not the noise. I'm looking for, for, for what's the wheat, not the chaff. Hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what those are. And, and I will say to you this, if you think about how we do this, it's not complicated. It starts first by telling ourselves the truth in a, in a, in a, in a really ruthless way. Second, to understand what few things really matter um, to get the jobs done that consumers are hiring us to do. What do we really have to do uh, and how do we prepare ourselves to be able to do that um, as the world plays out over the next two to five years? That's second. And then third, we get it done. No baloney. We really do get it done. And you, you take those three things, telling yourself the truth, um, knowing what matters and, and what matters to accomplish what your end is, and then getting it done. And you can have success. Um, there are, there are, you know, there's a better way and a worse way to do this. And, and the consistency of our performance, I think, would suggest that the way we've gone about it works. You mentioned before, I want to get back to the transformations in a second, but you mentioned before separating the signals from the noise. You know, right now, today, in, in retail, in food, especially, what is the noise and what's the signal um, from where you sit? So let's go to the last two transformations and that will tie right into that, okay? Beautiful. All right. So so the next transformation for us really occurred in, 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 in the mid-zeros. And as we went into the mid-zeros, we were in the early zeros. We were in the go-go years. And everybody was leveraging up their balance sheets. Everybody was growing at a very rapid rate. Felt a little like today. And it was at that time, I'm contrarian by nature. I'm looking for where is the world going to be in three to five years and where are we going to be? It seemed to me that was the time to, to harbor our resources. And we actually slowed down our development um, and we harbored resources. We didn't leverage up the balance sheet. And it allowed us when the recession hit, the Great Recession hit, we were, our brand was still strong. Our mm -hmm. business was strong. Everybody was running around at that point reacting and ripping costs out of the P&L. We recognized we still had a great brand. We increased our development rate by, by 150%. Um, it was the, they, they ended up being the best stores we ever built because real estate costs were down, yeah. development costs were down. And then simultaneously, as our competitors were running around trying to chase their, their declining comp store sales by ripping costs out of the P&L, essentially ripping labor costs out, which is uh, what it means is it's a tax on the consumer. The lines got longer, the table's dirtier, staff more frazzled. Mm -hmm. We chose to invest into the guest experience, um, invest more labor into our stores. We saw our comps go to mid-single digits during the recession, and we tripled the stock through the recession. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a transformative act because it came from a view that you know these, this, the, the economic downturn would not last forever, 
or else we'd all be cavemen, and, and that there was still a future. And we invested in growth, and we invested in building competitive advantage, being a better alternative for our guests to choose us for the jobs they wanted. So when people then, were then, trying to automate everything and putting in touch screens and self-checkouts, you instead went through... No, it was before that. Oh, this okay. was a time when literally the recession was hitting, sales were flat, and people were essentially going to the street and saying, I can rip more cost out of my P&O than the next company. So you saw the labor costs go down. Right, because they were chasing the sales down, and we said, "No, this is the time to take competitive advantage, to offer our comp- our customers even more." You know, you know, one of the things that 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 people will say about me, and I think this is really true as I look back on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have never focused on the stock price. I have never focused on the financial performance. It's a byproduct. I don't make the financial performance. What I can make is a better guest experience. And when you deliver on that guest experience in, 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 in an absolutely committed fashion, the byproduct is financial performance. I think one of the things that we often confuse in business, and I'll say it in life, is the difference between means, ends, and byproducts. I have a friend who's a type 1 diabetic. Mm-hmm. His, own, his goal, the byproduct he wants, is to stay as healthy and live as long as the rest of us. But he can't do very much about that, Kenny. That's his byproduct. The end he can focus on is keeping his blood sugar in control, making sure it doesn't go too far up and down. But again, that's an end. That's not something he does. It's something he monitors against. So what does he do? He watches his food intake. He watches his intake of various foods, and he gets lots of exercise. Those are the means when he keeps his blood, when he keeps his exercise up, when he keeps the the, the nature of the food he eats in control, he has his blood sugar in control. When his blood sugar is in control, he is able to manage his, his longevity. Same in business. I focused on the guest experience. When we deliver a superior guest experience such that you want to come to us, when we deliver large runways for growth for our company, big billion-dollar-plus businesses we can move into, mm-hmm. we then have a future. What that allows us to have is a better guest experience and these large runways for growth. And that's what drives the financial performance. So you focus I on the business, that, and then the, the the stock price follows. Absolutely, positively. Yeah. And the folks that focus on the stock price, in the end, always hit the rocks. Hmm. And in fact... They're giving me a great competitive alternative because they're short-terming it. And when, you, when you're focused on the next quarter or the next half year and, 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 and squeezing that thing, you're giving me a great big opportunity to do a better job than you're doing because the things of value take time to form. Wow. So you, hit, you went through the recession and you said you gained a lot of speed. And then how were you situated when things started really picking up again? No. So, so, so I actually decided in 2010 that I had learned, you know, I go to work to learn. I, I love the people I work with to laugh. I love the, the sense of making a difference and having an impact and figuring things out. And by 2009, um, uh, I began to feel like I'd learned so much of this and I wanted to take it and apply it in a, in a broader way to, to our, to our broader society. I, I um, and I made the decision to step back as CEO and become chairman. I actually retired. I helped. I created something called Panera Cares, mm-hmm. which are these nonprofit 
cafes where we have no set prices, and it was my test of humanity. You simply um, uh, put the the put what you think is the right donation in a in a basket, and we ended up serving millions of customers a year. We ended up finding that ultimately people do the right thing. Um, and and it was a really interesting experiment. I did that. So there were I no there were no prices. There was no prices. No set prices. Everything was was um, determined by what you chose to give. And if you had the resources, the assumption was you'd pay it forward. If you didn't, we welcomed you to come in and eat. And what were the, resu- what we what were the results? Over, yeah. On, on average, we collected eighty percent of the retail price. Wow. And because this was in a nonprofit, it sustained itself. Hmm. And we ended up opening these in Boston, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, and Portland, Oregon. Um, and I also did something, the, the other application of this, because I'm, I, I think long-term, um, is I, I was one of the co-founders of a group called No Labels, which was meant to try to create um, support and and capabilities for those that were willing to to... to, to in, in Congress that were willing to serve, um, shall I say, to reduce the hyper-partisanship that we were experiencing in, the, you know, in 2010 and 12, and to try to really develop a national strategy and solve some problems. You know, one of the things that strikes me, and I'm sure your listeners are struck by this as well, we're competing with the Chinese and have 20-year plans, and we can't get a budget passed for the next six months. How do you win then? You yeah. lose. It's the same way I've always won. I've won because I had enough credibility, um, and I voted enough stock, like 17% of the, of the stock of Panera, um, that I was able to make these long-term bets. And that's what gave us competitive advantage. And as a nation, um, straight up, we, 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 we give that to the Chinese. We're not able to, 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 to basically think long-term um, in in terms of how we compete, and and that's to our detriment, and we're we're, we're dominated by this hyper partisanship that's more interested in beating the other party than it is in in quite frankly governing. And governing is coming together and and, and solving problems. It's not um, ideological purity. At any rate, started a group, co-founded a group with some other folks around trying to reduce that. And I was your I was the executive chairman of Panera, and I was out about a year. And and I wrote a memo one weekend for the guy who took over from me. Mm-hmm. And I, in this memo, I basically defined how I would compete with Panera if I weren't part of Panera, how I would take on Panera. And Bill Morton, who had taken over from me and one of my very dearest friends, he'd been my CFO for many years, he looked and said, Ron, will you work on this? <laughs> and I thought to myself, sure. And I started working on it. Blaine Hurst is now our president and will be our next CEO. He came to help me on it. Um, you know, and I started to work on this stuff. And I have to tell you, um, I, ne- I was having so much fun with it, right in the guts of, of, of trying to figure out how do you fix a, a guest system that limited our sales. Um, and, and I ended up um, over those, those the, the next year or two, painting a vision for how Panera could retransform itself. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to the rate and term in real time? And why can't there be client-focused technological mortgage revolution? 
Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loan. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. And that transformation was essentially um, rooted in using digital mm-hmm. to fix our guest experience. It was um, focused on redefining how we innovate in terms of food, store design, uh, to build a loyalty program that, that, that would make a real difference. It was rooted in finding large adjacent billion-dollar businesses that we could enter, things like delivery and, 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 and large-order catering mm-hmm. um, and what we call Panera at Home, which is our CPG business. At any rate, I, I, I began to work on this vision for a transformed Panera in 11 and 12. And then um, Bill had some things that, that, that made him unable to travel. And he felt out of integrity, frankly, as the CEO couldn't travel, some things going on in his life. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to step back in as CEO, so I did. Bill became our vice chairman. He took my job and I took his. And I was right back in the middle of Panera. And I used this transformation model and this vision I had written. And over the next four or five years, we invested into it $150 million in digital. And we ended up in 2017, this year, um, where our digital business is the largest um, of any of the any restaurant chain in America at 30% of sales outside the big three pizza mm-hmm. guys. Yeah, right. I, interesting. Because I was – sorry, go ahead. So we're processing 1.2 million digital transactions a week, and just to give you a sense of it, um, and we're probably one of the 30 largest e-commerce operators in the country today. Our loyalty program is today the largest in the restaurant industry, 28 million Americans, over 50% of our transactions. We were, you know, you, you, you talk about food quality. We were the first restaurant chain to be able to um, offer a fully clean menu, free of all artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, and sweeteners. It followed a long-term tradition of, of really being on the side of guests with food. It goes back 20 years to when we were the first people to offer antibiotic-free chicken, the first people to remove trans fats from our baked goods, the first people... Um, in a national chain to post caloric information, hmm. first people to provide a no-no list of the artificial ingredients we wouldn't put in. And, you know, we had this long tradition. We built off of that. We rebuilt the innovation strategy in food. We're, you know, we're right now rolling out a wonderful new breakfast sandwich with a uh, sunny-side-up egg that actually you can see the yolk um, on a brioche. That's the kind of product development that we did. Um, we also coupled that as we built out what we call omnichannel, 
and delivery is now pushing uh, over 50% of our stores. Um, it's got a big sales gain to it. And I can, I can only tell you, Panera in 2017, comps are up over 6%. Um, that's in an industry that's down 100 basis points or more. Hmm. We're running 700 basis points better than the all industry composite. And this company has never been stronger. It led to us being in a position to do this deal with JAB, which I'll share with you, which ended up being the largest U.S. restaurant deal ever done hmm. at some of the highest multiples ever done. Um, and um, it really was a statement of the strength of our company. I'm going to go back real quick, but you, you're mentioning how important this, you know, digital, creating a digital footprint, digital ordering, um, everything on the mobile phones, because I've done some stories on, you know, the mobile payment industry, and everyone always says the best mobile payment, you know, app in the world is Starbucks. Just saying that's like, they do such a great job with um, with loyalty, you know, being people's lives. Like, how did you, when you start from scratch saying, okay, we're going to put $100 million into a digital program. Million. 150 million. How do you, um, would, like, day one, how do you start? Do you, do you call consultants? Do you investigate no, the whole all. market? Do you do it all internally? Let, 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 let me first say, I think Panera is perceived by most people among the three best technology shops in the restaurant industry, us, Domino's, and Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we have a larger loyalty program than either of the other two. Uh, we're, we're twice the size of Starbucks. And I think we've approached it very differently than anybody else. Um, we came, and, and it's really instructive, back in 2011, we didn't start out to create a digital program mm-hmm. um, or a mobile app. We started out to solve a guest experience. And, 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 and so much of what we do as business people is rooted in empathy for our guests. To me, that's the mo- one of the most powerful skills we as business leaders have. And I'll tell you how our, our digital effort occurred and how it was so different than everybody else's. Um, I can remember in 2011, I'd be driving my kids to school. And when I drove them first to school, I usually went for what I call double brownie points. That means my wife could stay in bed, I'd get them breakfast and lunch. <laughs> and, and, you know, in my family, we're always running late. Without question. I think like most American families, of course. And and so I'd be running late. There'd be a Panera on the way um, to their school and my work. And we'd always want to get Panera because it had breakfast and lunch. And and because we were late, I would call ahead from the road. I'd ask for the manager because I wanted to make sure the order got taken right. I'd give him the order and say, my son will be there. We'll be there in about four minutes. My son will run in with his credit card. Just ring him through and get him out of there in 30 seconds. And he'd do that, and he'd get back to the car in 30 seconds. And I go, wow, this is phenomenal. What about the other eight and a half million people we serve every week? You know, they don't have that experience. And, and you know, this was a, you know, it was great to have your food made simultaneously mm-hmm. with your trip to the store. And I began to imagine, how would I do that? And I began to say, digital, whether it be on the web or on a mobile device, offered a powerful alternative to meet a guest need. Similarly, I'd go to a meeting in one of our cafes, and I'd be meeting somebody. I remember I was going to meet a university president who was asking me for a major contribution. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he was there in advance. I got there at the, at the 9 o'clock mark for our meeting. I wanted to be out of there by 9.30. That's how much time I had on my calendar. And he looked at me and said, do you want a, a muffin and a cup of coffee? And I thought for, my, for a minute, do I really want to wait in that line? 
Mm-hmm. Go over to the mosh pit. You have to wait to pick up my food and then sit down. I'll use seven or eight of my 30 minutes. And I thought to myself, darn it. Why can't Panera just allow me to sit down? They have my loyalty card. Why can't they simply know? I, I click two clicks, tell them what my favorites are. And why can't they just bring me the food so I can start my conversation? And I said to myself, God, Ron, go do it. <laughs> and then I can remember I would be home writing during this moment of retirement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it would be lunchtime, be about noon. I'd be getting hungry. I had three Paneras within four blocks of my home. One, two blocks away, one, three, and one, four. And I say to myself, Ron, do you really want to get in the car, drive the four blocks, find, try to find a parking spot, get in the line, leave the line, get in the mosh pit, get back in your car, drive home. That's going to be 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, I find myself at the refrigerator like a cat sniffing around for leftovers. And I, you'd say to yourself, if only Panera could deliver, think of the potential. So I, in essence, back in 2011, along with a couple of my senior guys, I actually said, I'm going to go build this. I'm going to build an integrated solution to fix the guest experience and use technology to do that. Hmm. That's what uh, the original Panera 2.0 model was that we, we built over over two years. We, you know, it was 25 pieces of technology. We, we actually tested it in the cafe, and we then stopped because we, we discovered that as we increased, as we, as we released the ability for customers to order, when you get rid of registers, which limit the number of orders that can be placed, mm-hmm. and, you, and you, you end up with unfettered demand. And so when orders come in digitally and on the web and mobily, you can't limit them, right? So we would see at noon our, 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 our kitchen display systems light up like a Christmas tree on Christmas morning. And you'd say, well, we have to rebuild the production systems now to match the, the, the demand. And we stopped, unlike like our friends at Starbucks and a number of others who had rolled this out. We stopped and we took nine months and used the principle of TQM to rebuild the production systems. And so we built an integrated solution. Mm-hmm. What most of my industry did back in 11 and 12 was the hot thing was to have a mobile app. And, and I can remember in, in 2012 going with my son to Houston and we were going to a basketball game, and I was doing research. And I remember placing an order on somebody else's mobile app. And I got to the restaurant, and they told me to wait in the same line. And then I got to the front of the line, and they said, well, fire your, 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 your food right now. <laughs> and I thought to myself, why in God's name did I place an order on that mobile app? How did it help me as a guest? And the reality is it didn't. It's because some CEO said to his IT guy, we need a mobile app. But nobody asked the question, why do we need a mobile app for the guest? And what we did in Panera, which is very different than everybody else, some people added mobile apps, some, our friends at Starbucks, added a payment option, others added different pieces of it. We added an integrated system that changed the guest experience. So you did front end and and you made sure the back end caught up with the front end? Yes, the whole thing. And it took us two years to build it. Meanwhile, that's essentially what everybody else came around to by 2015. Hmm. They began to realize that, that separated apps didn't add value unless it was integrated. And in fact, our friends at Starbucks in 2016 found that out. Because in 16, they rolled finally their version of rapid pickup, where you place an order on the web or mobile and you can walk in and get it. 
they finally rolled it out. They rolled out payment first, then they rolled out mobile order and pay. Mm-hmm. And they began to discover, they rolled out very quickly, and they discovered they, they didn't have the back ends to support it, which led to a lot of their challenges in 17. And I appreciate the time, Ron. I, and I want to talk a little bit about the um, the, acqu- the sale um, last year. You know, you were talking about always thinking about long-term, not trying to jump to quarter to quarter. Um, and you essentially took the company private, um, which obviously takes a lot of the pressure off the um, takes pressure off the company for you know trying to hit those quarterly goals. Tell me a little bit about that and like the motivation um, in selling this thing you worked you know for almost forty years of your life to uh, to build. Yeah. So so as I said to you, we've had the best performance of any restaurant company. As I said to you, the reason that, that what drove that performance was our ability to make these long term transformations, these smart bets. Um, multiple times over those 36 years. And the reality is, as a a long-term CEO, 26 years, I've had the opportunity to to really look and reflect in the public markets. And here's what I see. I see investors no longer owning companies but renting stock. Hmm. 40 years ago, the average holding time for for a public company was eight years. Today, it's eight months. Um, People are renting their stock. You have a very, very, very different world um, that, that's played out. You have activists that are now part of it. You have a great deal of money that's being managed passively. You have um, the, 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 the index funds that are deferring uh, often to ISS to make judgments. And nobody feels capable of separating the wheat from the chaff. So we go to the, the path of least resistance and say, well, what the heck? It can't hurt the, the help the activists. And, and, and we see across multiple industries, we see, saw it in mine increasingly, companies like Buffalo Wild Wings, where uh, you had a, a, a first-class CEO, woman mm-hmm. who had a 10-bagger up 1,000% over, over 15 years running her public company. She had a flat year. She ended up with an activist, despite the support of her franchisees and her entire management team. Uh, the activists were voted uh, in control of the board. Um, stock took off for about four weeks and then fell 40%. Wow. And today, Buffalo Wild Wings, it was announced they were sold for basically the price they were trading at before the activists came in. I mean, this was, and, 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 and it did nothing. You know, we see it with, with others like Dine Equity, which is ran the, 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 the playbook for financial engineering. They, they gutted the overhead, they franchised out every store. It was a you know yield rich environment, and then they they ran into a, a comp store sales problem. Comp store sales were off six seven percent. Um, you, you know you know you talk to their franchisees. Who's going to fix it? The only thing that that the corporation really has in it anymore is is an interest in intellectual property. They have no resources, hmm. no corp, no no significant corporate structure. They have no place where they can test solutions. You know, um, you know, a world in which somebody can walk in and say, I own 2% of the company. I got another 6% in derivatives. I'm your owner. I want you to, to cut your cost in half, cut your R&D. I want you to lever up the balance sheet, sell the stock, and let somebody else worry about the carcass. That has an effect, and it has an effect on, on CEOs. And at the same time, we see, you know, what, what are now termed the – the, the FANG companies, the, 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 the hottest companies in, in, in the public marketplace today, they're the ones that, 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 that are winning. Who are they? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. 
And yeah. what, what is their competitive advantage? They have capital structures that let them make long-term decisions. And, and you know, I, I find it fascinating. I was on the board of Whole Foods. Whole Foods was sold to Amazon. Yeah. What's Amazon doing? The same things that we would have done at Whole Foods. They're investing in digital, and they cut prices because the competitive environment changed. Hmm. But, in, but in Whole Foods, we couldn't do it because of the short-term pressures that were coming at us from people that really wanted us to produce the results right now. What's Amazon got? They have the room and the time to make these kinds of investments. And here's my point. It's really central to all of us. These put CEOs in a very weak position. I had a strong position, but most CEOs don't. CEOs want to please. They don't want the vulnerability of somebody walking in and taking control of their company and everything they've often spent careers building. So, Ron, when you so sold tighten up. Yeah. When you sold Panera, I'll get there. They, they, these <laughs> CEOs tighten up, and they get short term, and that's the reality. And 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 when they go short term, they go for cost cutting, and they ignore innovation, and they ignore building community, and they ignore taking care of their their, their team members. And the ultimate result is it dramatically affects the ability to do long term transformation, which is really our calling card. And it dramatically affects GDP growth mm-hmm. and economic competitiveness for the society. And, and, you know, as I said earlier, it's the very same thing we see in our politics. Short-termism, trying to beat the other side and get that short-term advantage at the, at the price of the long term. And so I saw this, and I recognized that for Panera, its greatest strength was its ability to make these long-term transformations. That's how we got here. And I could do it because I controlled 17% of the stock. Mm-hmm. I could do it because of my credibility. But I worry deeply that in a world in which the public markets were increasingly the shortest money and private money was the longest, I wanted to find a way in which Panera could continue to make long-term trends well past the time that I would be here. And I met these guys from JAB. Um, I, I, I didn't know them. I talked to lots of people. Mm-hmm. And a one-hour lunch turned out to be a six-hour meeting. These guys shared the philosophy. They're ultra-long-term investors. They're not playing for the short term. They're, 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 they're large European families and a number of institutions, mm-hmm. um, big pools of capital. They, As I said, they're an evergreen fund. They, they have no time limit. Unlike private equity, it's not a seven- the 10-year lockup, and then they have to sell the asset. They're in it for the long-term investing Warren Buffett style, which is to say we want to use the cash and let you use the cash to build your business. And I began to think about it. I wasn't for sale. This company was rocking at, a, at, a, at a hitting new highs mm-hmm. and delivering industry-leading comp store sales north of 6%. And they came to me with a proposal. Um, and I began to recognize that First, for our ability to continue to do great work, I could think of no place better than with an ultra-long-term investor, really a holding fund, um, that, that allowed our people to do it. For my own team members, I couldn't think of a better place to do great work. Mm-hmm. They allowed us, and their key thing was to equify management. And indeed, I will tell you, I made a significant reinvestment in the new company personally. I was that impressed with them. Um, and, and this kind of model of equified management combined with long-term thinking. And then I thought about it for my, my shareholders. Um, it was a great um, run, and it was a great way to transition from a public environment um, and 
uh, to be able to give our shareholders, um, you know, 25% annualized returns over two decades. Couldn't be better. I just felt for every constituency was great. The only one who I didn't feel great about was for me personally. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 you'll laugh. But, yeah, why? but why? I had worked so hard in this transformation, um, the last one. And it was, re- and, you know, and I had, I had felt the pain of it. I had activists in the middle of it who thought I should cut back on the digital investment. And, 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 you know, when you care about something, you, you know, when you really care about it, that's what creates vulnerability. And I realized um, at a very personal level that we had actually won at this transformation. And yet, you know, I would have probably enjoyed the victory lap of success. Mm-hmm. But I realized that, that, that if I really, really cared not about myself in this, but about our guests, about our team members, um, about about the communities in which we live, making sure this had the ability to make long-term decisions for the long-term with ultra-long-term investors like JEB was the best course of action. So uh, I want to – this has been a, a great talk. I feel like we can talk for six hours, like you said, that uh, that meeting turned into. Um, so now you, you are – you're controlled by a long-term, a long-term investor, so you don't, you don't, you can think super long-term. You're um, transitioning outside of the CEO um, position to more of a chairman role to think even more long-term. So, what is the long-term play of Panera right now? Like, so what are we going to see in the next five years? Now that you don't have to watch the clock, you don't have to care about what month it is. Where is the thought going? Well, if I were to, I, if I, I obviously don't talk about where we're going in the future. Because I, one of the advantages of now being private is I, I used to telegraph it to our competitors every quarter mm-hmm. and provide data as I did quarterly reports. The beauty of being private, I don't have to tell anybody what we're going to do. I don't have to share it with anybody other than the people within Panera. And But I can tell you, we have a track record over 36 years of figuring out what's going to happen tomorrow and, and, and making sure we're there as that future unfolds. And I can tell you that that the key to the way we run Panera is to start by telling ourselves the truth about where the market's at. Secondly, by by really understanding what's going to matter to our target consumer, um, and 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 truly figuring out um, what we have to do to deliver that for them. And then third, to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that we'll continue to do that. Well, without giving any trade secrets, can you? Give me and our listeners one kind of food trend that you're excited about coming down the line. You know, I I, I, I can tell you what I'm excited about at Panera that's happening right now. You know, we, we've spent the last year and a half saying, hey, there's a powerful opportunity at breakfast. And that opportunity is for um, something that is truly differentiated for breakfast. And we're rolling out right now across the country a, a breakfast sandwich. I, I will tell you, it's to die for. I eat it every day. It's 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 a scrambled egg, or it's a um, it's a sunny side up egg. But the yolk, you know, it's 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 a fresh egg. We crack it, but that yolk that a that yolk runs. It's not a hard boiled egg you get in so many commercial food establishments. It runs, and we 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 um, add to that uh, Vermont cheese, um, uh, extra thick applewood smoked bacon, sometimes some wonderful aioli sauces, and we put that on a brioche. And boy, I want one every single day. That's about real food, and it's about food that gets me excited for breakfast. And that's the kind of thing that we're going to continue to be doing. 
Well, it's a great. I think it's a great place to end. It's making me hungry now thinking about it. Um, well, but that's breakfast, Steve, not yep. lunch. We've also got some new salads for lunch. That's good. You have to have, if you're gonna have the big, you know, the big egg sandwich. You have to have a salad for lunch to kind of balance it out, right? Absolutely. Go for it. Well, um, that was a great show. Uh, I want to thank Ron Shake, the founder, CEO, and chairman of Panera. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. All right, Steve. Take uh, care and the best to you and your listeners. Thanks. Take care, man. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Names are on Podcast One Sportsnet, the home of Dan Patrick. If I'm hanging out with any of the Kardashians, I'm hanging out with Chloe. As well as news shows like Red Circle Sports with Dennis Miller. Goodell has become completely full of it. Riggle's Picks with Rob Riggle and Sarah Tiana. Do you know the difference between a million and a billion? Um, the B. And AP Sports Weekly with Jim Litke. Have you guys ever considered trading Alabama for the Cleveland Browns? All this and more exclusively on PodcastOneSports.com and the Podcast One app. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.